Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, last section, Matthew seven fifteen. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from, grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By her fruit, you will know her. Or in keeping with the theme today, by her fruit, you will know them. Let's pray. Oh, God. Pioneers way back in the rearview mirror. Third millennium, here we are. What does it mean? Please be clear. For the glory of Christ, we wait on you in his name. Amen. On November 26, 1827, in a little rural village called Gorham, Maine, not too far from Portland, the home of Robert and Eunice Harmon, already bulging with two sons and four daughters, overnight is automatically increased with the addition of two twins. They name one Elizabeth. They name the other Ellen. Father Harmon, hardworking farmer, frigid winters like what we're enjoying now. What can you do? He turns to augment his meager resources. Hat making. Becomes a hat maker. But it's when the twins are nine that a life-shattering event radically shifts the paradigm for one of the twins, her name, Ellen. They're coming back from school one sunny afternoon. They've They've got a classmate with them. Some older girl in the school is angry at them, just mad, and she's following them, calling out, calling out. They've been taught by their mother. A soft answer turns away wrath, and so they... Scamper across the street to the other side, but the girl keeps coming, and now the twins pick up their pace, and finally Ellen, wanting to gauge the distance to the attacker, turns, and in that split second, a stone smashes into her face, and she falls unconscious. I'm going to let her describe what happened. Put the words on the screen for you. I was stunned by the blow and fell senseless to the ground. When consciousness returned, I found myself in a merchant's store. A kind stranger offered to take me home in his carriage, but I, not realizing my weakness, told him that I I preferred to walk. Those present were not aware that my injury was so serious and allowed me to go, but after walking only a few rods, I grew faint and dizzy. My twin sister and my schoolmate carried me home. I have no recollection of anything further for some time after the accident. My mother said that I noticed nothing but lay in a stupor for three weeks. No one but herself thought it possible for me to recover, but for some reason, God bless our mothers, for some reason she felt that I would live. I was reduced almost to a skeleton, end quote. Then one day a neighbor lady walks in and says, what a pity, I would never have recognized her. And little Ellen overhears. She calls for a mirror. They bring the glass in. She stares at the horror of that face in the reflection. 
She writes, every feature of my face seemed changed. The sight was more than I could bear. I didn't wish to live, but I dared not die, for I was not prepared. I'm telling you what, in an age as obsessed as we are today with physical appearance, so obsessed are we that we go on our Facebook pages and we doctor the pictures so that they look even better than we do. Let's not be too hard. They were the same. Kids are all the same. But the most crushing blow came when her daddy came home. He'd, he was on, he'd been on a business trip to Georgia. He comes back in and says, Hey, kids, how you doing? Where's, where's little Ellen? He walked into the room and could not recognize her. She writes, It was hard to make him believe that I was his Ellen. This cut me to the heart, yet I tried to put on the appearance of cheerfulness when my heart ached. Does your heart ever ache over the way you look? Come on. You're not alone. Some 50 years later, the grown-up Ellen, on a visit to her hometown, went to that street, relived the memory, and then wrote these words. Put them on the screen again. I visited the spot where I met with the accident that has made me a lifelong invalid. It just crushed her health. This misfortune, which for a time seemed so bitter and was so hard to bear, has proved to be a blessing in disguise. Can you believe this? Keep reading. The cruel blow which blighted the joys of earth was the means of turning my eyes to heaven. I might never have known Jesus. Some of you have gone through heartache. You're going through something right now. And you're saying, this is, this, this is all for nothing. Could it be this is what leads you to Jesus? I might never have known Jesus had not the sorrow that cl- cl- clouded my early years led me to seek comfort in Him. End quote. Wow. That's quite, that's quite a testimony, isn't it? I might never have known Jesus had that stone not collapsed my face. In 1840, an itinerant Baptist farmer turned preacher comes riding into town and soon the amazed audiences sit spellbound as this man named William Miller begins to expound Bible prophecy and he's making his point convincingly that we, we are living near the end of this earth and Jesus is coming soon. Ellen At this time, she's 13. She sits with her family in rapt attention. Jesus is coming soon. She would later write, put the words again on the screen. Faith now took possession of my heart. I felt an inexpressible love for God and had the witness of a spirit that my sins were pardoned. My views of the Father were changed. I now looked upon him as a kind and tender parent. This is the gospel. This is the good news. I looked upon him as a kind, tender parent rather than a stern tyrant, compelling man to a blind obedience. My heart went out toward him in a deep and fervent love. My heart was so filled with love to God and the peace that passeth understanding that I loved to meditate and pray, end quote. Soon young Ellen and her family joined the tens of thousands up and down the eastern seaboard who have embraced the teaching of this William Miller. They're calling them Millerites and they are counting down October 22, 1844. Jesus is coming. Just a few more days. Just a few more days. And of course, he didn't come. And that little little 16-year-old heartbroken wept like the rest. 
In December, just a few weeks later, in December morning, 1844, she's now, because November has passed, turned 17, she was at a friend's home in a circle of prayer with four other women, and she described what happened next. I need to tell you that good things happen. God things happen when you gather in a little circle of prayer. It's called a grow group. Anyway, she describes it. Put it on the screen for you. While we were praying, the power of God... God, things happened. The power of God came upon me as I had never felt it before. Little 17-year-old, I seemed to be surrounded with light and to be rising higher and higher from the earth. I turned to look for the Advent people in the world, but could not find them when a voice said to me, look again, look a little higher. At this, I raised my eyes and saw a straight and narrow path cast up high above the world. And on this path, the Advent people were traveling to the city, which was at the farther end of the path. They had a bright light set up behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. This light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so that they might not stumble. If they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, I went ahead and underlined that. If they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was just before them, leading them to the city, they were safe. Ladies and gentlemen, that line If they kept their eyes on Jesus, they were safe. Became the radical paradigm shift in the life mission of this little 17-year-old teenager. She She will spend now the 70 years ahead of her championing that single line, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we are safe. It's still true. It was true 2,000 years ago. When the New Testament was written, it's still true. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, we are safe. So what kind of a woman was this Ellen White, who at 18 falls in love with a just-turned 25-year-old itinerant preacher named James, and at 20 becomes the mother of the first of four boys, This wife, this mother, this homemaker, this visionary, this church leader, this public speaker, this intrepid traveler, this institutional builder, this published best-selling author. What kind of a woman was she really? Now, look, you know all those categories. You know about them. Let me share another category with you. Social activist. I didn't see this until my friend Denny Fortin wrote a paper in a a committee that he was uh, serving on. I listened to him read that paper. I want to read this from the paper. What kind of a social activist was he? Amazing, amazing. Listen. As she began her prophetic ministry to prepare, Denny writing, to prepare God's people for Jesus' second coming, Ellen White not only addressed issues of doctrine and behavior, she also addressed issues of intrinsic evil in society. Hold on. In her own way, she was an advocate of reforms, a social reformer, and at times she became insistent on these reforms. She readily espoused abolitionism, Get rid of slavery, all right? She readily espoused it and even advocated, hold on, social disobedience in response to the federal government's Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. What was that Fugitive Slave Act? It imposed heavy penalties on those who refused to help government slave catchers or who obstructed the recapture of a fugitive slave. Now, 
There's a little series of books called Testimonies to the Church. In the first volume, she wrote these words to that fledgling movement. The laws of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to obey. And we must abide the consequences of the violation of this law. This slave is not the property of any man. God is his rightful master. And man has no right to take God's workmanship into his hands and claim him as his own. Wow. Oh, by the way, not only abolitionism. She advocated temperance, the closing of saloons and taverns. She urged women to take a strong stand against the evils of alcohol in their homes and towns. She advocated for health reform and education reform. Denny concludes, today we benefit greatly from these reforms and we seldom think about the influence women like Ellen White had in making our society and church what it has become. We have forgotten the social conditions in which our ancestors lived. Now look. What kind of a woman was she? She was a, uh, she was a child of the 1800s. She was a Victorian woman. I'll put her picture on the screen for you. She's not going to end up on the cover of People magazine. I'm just letting you know. Or Vogue magazine or Glamour magazine. Why? Because she's Victorian, 1800s. Which is not to suggest she was some sort of prude. I just love this little story. Let me tell it to you. On one occasion, she attended the wedding of a young preacher named Daniel Bordeaux, who for three years had been searching for a wife. And he wasn't going to Andrews University. (laughs) He finally found one. And James White officiated at the home wedding. Now, because the service was late in the day, the newlyweds accepted the invitation of of their house host to spend the night here as the Whites were going to do. In the same house with the Whites on your first night of your honeymoon. Now, Herbert Douglas, in his marvelous book, Messenger of the Lord, he tells what happens next. So I'm going to read this. When Ellen White, who, by the way, was 33 years old, she's still young. When Ellen White went upstairs to retire that night, she saw a very nervous young man pacing back and forth in front of a closed bedroom door. She suspected a problem. Gently, she said to the young bridegroom, as the bride later quoted her husband's recital of the incident, Daniel, Daniel. Inside that room is a frightened young woman in bed, petrified with fear. Now you go into her right now, and you love her, and you comfort her. And Daniel, you treat her tenderly, and you treat her lovingly. It will do her good. And then she added, Daniel, it will do you good, too. (laughs) I must tell you that I've read Ellen White for years. And I have found her, her life set ablaze with these three fiery passions. Turns out they were the passions of every one of the pioneers we've been examining. All of them, these, these early pioneers, ignited with these passions. Ellen White as well. Jot them down. Pull your study guide out. No fanfare to get it to you. We're just going to keep going. Passion number one, a passion for the Savior. A passion for the Savior. <laughs> Steps to Christ, the spiritual classic that has become the most translated book of hers, reflects her passion for Jesus. You you can't miss it. So I'll put the words on the screen for you. You have it in your study guide. You are not to look to yourself. This is great counsel for us. You are not to let the mind dwell upon self, but look to Christ. 
Let the mind dwell upon His love, upon the beauty, the perfection of His character. Christ in His self-denial. Christ in His humiliation. Christ in His purity and holiness. Christ in His matchless love. This is a subject for the soul's contemplation. It is by loving Him, copying Him, depending wholly upon Him, that you are to be transformed into His likeness. Isn't that good? What was that line from her first vision? How did it go? If we will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will be safe. Now, I happen to read widely, and I can tell you, I will testify that I have never found a more Christocentric writer than Ellen White. She had three passions. Passion number one, passion for the Savior. Passion number two, a passion for the, a passion for the Savior's return. Jot that one down. Uh, she set ablaze with this throughout her writings. Began with her teenage heart. Listen to these words of hope that, she, she's, that, that, that describes this passion. Put it on the screen for you. The Lord is coming. Lift up your heads and rejoice. This is the good, the good, the joyful news which should electrify. Oh, I love that word. Which should electrify every soul, which should be repeated in our homes. Young parents, when's the last time you told your children Jesus is coming soon? When's the last time you told your children that Jesus is coming soon? It ought to be repeated in our homes. She goes on. These, this is the good news that ought to be told to those whom we meet on the street. What? more joyful news can be communicated. Yeah. Passion. Three passions. Passion for the Savior, passion for the Savior soon return, and finally, passion for the lost who have not met the Savior yet. Jot it down. Passion for the lost. I've never read an author more passionate about saving lost people for Christ. I have these words scribbled in my Bible on one of the margins. Put them on the screen for you. Recently in the night season, I was awakened from sleep and given a view of the sufferings of Christ for men and women. His sacrifice, the mockery and derision he received at the hands of wicked men, his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, his betrayal and crucifixion, all were vividly portrayed before me. As I have thought of that cup in Gethsemane, trembling in the hands of Christ, as I have realized that he might have refused to drink and left the world to perish in its sin, I have pledged, oh, this is something else. Can you make this pledge? I have pledged that every energy of my life should be devoted to the work of winning souls to him. End quote. Wow. Every energy of my life. Called by God at the age of 17, gifted with a spiritual gift of prophecy, Ellen White lived her 70 prolific years of ministry ignited by these three passions. And what was the fruit of her life and ministry? No wonder it is what it is. Jot them down. You're going to get a little bit of writer's cramp here because I'm going to run them by you real quick. Here we go. What's the fruit of her, what, what's the fruit of her ministry? <clears throat> Excuse me. She is considered today the third most translated author in history. Jot that down. She is the most... This is in, in the human history, all right? Next, uh, fact number two, she is the most translated American author, male or female. Fact number three, her literary productions totaled approximately 100,000 pages. That would be the equivalent of 25 million words. Fact number four, more than 126 titles are in print bearing her name, including books that are compilations. 
And as a fruit of her ministry and leadership, God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church to become, jot this down, the largest Protestant educational system in the world today, and we are on one of its campuses. Number two, the largest Protestant health system in the world today. Number three, the largest Protestant publishing enterprise in the world today. Number four, the most expansive Protestant missions outreach in the world today with the Seventh-day Adventist Church in more countries than any other denomination of Protestantism. How did Jesus put it? Let me read the words to you again. Verse 18, Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, a good tree. Listen, listen, listen. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You can't be a bad tree and have fruit like this. Verse 20, thus by their fruits you will recognize them. By her fruit you will recognize them. Dwight, who are the them? Let me tell you who the them are. When I read this little recitation of fruitful ministry, I must tell you, it is a great irony, okay, to me, okay, to me. It is a great irony that this young, de- this young denomination, co-founded along with her husband James and Joseph Bates, co-founded by a woman of such global influence and spiritual authority, I am nonplussed at the great debate in some circles over whether women should be allowed to share the same spiritual leadership and authority as men in this community of faith. Spiritual leadership and authority recognized by the right of ordination to the gospel ministry. I have dear friends, and I'm telling you, they are very dear friends, who are absolutely adamant that a theory called male headship prevents or precludes young women who've heard the call of Christ, even as the young Ellen did once upon a time. These dear brothers are insistent that Ellen's life calling in no way provides an historical and spiritual precedent for young women being ordained into the same gospel ministry as I and my brother pastors enjoy. Notwithstanding, by the way, the historical fact that our early pioneers took a decided stand in favor of women preachers with spiritual authority. Pause button. I'm not here to debate biblically. Now listen to me carefully. Because both positions... Both convictions convictions are solidly biblical. That's why. We have been around this and around this and around this and around this. There's no secret text left. There's no secret understanding left. It's clear. Both positions, be clear on that, are solidly biblical. Instead, what I want to share with you how the pioneers themselves handled the two toughest texts that are kind of the sticking point. Let's talk about the pioneers. You'd be interested to know this. Between uh, 1857 and 1861, the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, which we call the Adventist Review today, published a series of eight articles that challenged the notion, now listen, that challenged the notion that 1 Corinthians 14.34, how does that line go? Paul's line, women should remain silent in the churches. And again, in 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul's line, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Eight articles challenging the notion that Paul was somehow being prescriptive for all Christians in all churches throughout all time through these two isolated verses. Challenging 
And then, 1879, along comes the namesake of Andrews University, John Nevins Andrews. And he writes two articles. Denny Fortin showed me this. He writes two articles. One article appears at the beginning of the year in the Adventist Review. And in these two articles, the other one appears in the Signs of the Times. In these two articles, he explains these two texts. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2. The very text, by the way, that my friends of the male headship theory are using today to support their position that women should not be ordained and granted spiritual authority in the church. He goes after those two texts. Let me show you his words. This would be from the Review and Herald article. Put the words on the screen for you. Thank you, Denny Fortin, for finding these. You see the words on the screen? Regarding the church in Corinth, this is Jane Andrews writing, what the apostle says to women in such a church as this, in such a state of things, is not to be taken as directions to all Christian women in other churches and in other times. Andrews' unmistakable point is that Paul's counsel regarding particular circumstances in these two local congregations is not universally prescriptive. That's the point that the namesake of this university is making. Now, signs of the times. Later that year, these are his words on the screen again. The number of women of whom honorable mention is made for their labors in the gospel. By the way, this afternoon, go home and read Romans chapter 16. It is replete with the names of women that Paul calls my co-labors in gospel ministry. The number of women of whom honorable mention is made for their labors in the gospel is not small. Now, Andrew's writing, in view of these facts, how can any man in this age of Bibles say that the Bible does not notice women or give them a place in the work of God? The Lord chooses His own workers, and He does not judge as man judges. Man looks at appearance. God judges the heart, and He never makes mistakes. End quote. So we're going to the pioneers. Denny Fortin observes, these are Denny's words, I find it interesting that in her 70 years of ministry, Ellen White never referred to or commented on 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, or 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, to limit the ministry women can do in the church or society. Then he concludes, perhaps her silence speaks volumes as to the importance we should give to these two passages. End quote. But what about Ellen White herself? Didn't she write about women? Oh, she wrote a lot about women. I'm only going to share two lines with you, two quotations. But I will remind you that at a time when she is writing and ministering, do you know what the role of the woman in society is? Don't even go to school. Most of them never, might have finished elementary school and that was it. They're living in a time when physical and sexual abuse... Husband comes home drunk. It's your problem. She's living at a time. Women cannot vote. No, you can't vote. What do you think? Property? <laughs> so in that time, when she takes what you're about to see, this position, it is radically countercultural. Now, she's writing from Australia, from Kurumbang. New South Wales, Australia, March 1898. You saw it on our video trailer just a moment ago. Ellen White, put the words on the screen, please. If women do the work that is not the most agreeable to many of those who labor in word and doctrine, and if their works testify that they are accomplishing a work that has been manifestly neglected, should not such labor be looked upon as being as rich in results as the work of the ordained ministers? 
This question is not for men to settle. The Lord has settled it. Again and again, the Lord has shown me that women teachers... Teaching is the highest spiritual authority office in the church. We've been reminded many times. Notice this. Women teachers are just as greatly needed to do the work to which God has appointed them as are men. Now, I put the italics in here at the end. There are women who should labor in the, and I underlined that, in the gospel ministry, end quote. Because when the phrase, the gospel ministry, is used, it most often refers to the ordained pastors of the ministry. On another occasion, here's the other line. She wrote, It is the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit of God that prepares workers, both men and women, to become pastors to the flock of God. End quote. Hmm. Yeah, but come on, come on, come on, Dwight. How can the church remain united if debating over the ordination of women to the gospel ministry, it decides this summer at the General Conference in San Antonio, Texas, it decides to allow the regions of the world to decide what is best for the church in their own regions? Do you know why I am not worried at all about the unity of the church when it comes to the practice of women's ordination? I'll tell you why. Because apparently God himself has provided for a diverse practice within the church of Christ. May I take you back to the book of Acts and remind you that the church in Jerusalem continued to cling to the ceremonial law that Paul was telling all the Gentile churches he was raising up. Hey, by the way, at Calvary, it's over. You don't have, you don't have to live by those, those, those sacrifices, those purification rites. No, you, Jesus took care of it all. He is the Lamb of God. But the church in Jerusalem kept, because they had to reach a Jewish populace, they kept being sympathetic to these rites so that when Paul comes at the end of his third missionary journey, he comes sailing into town. They, the brethren grab him, the leadership, and they say, hey, Paul, you know what? The word has gone out that you're, you're being very hard on Judaism. How about if you go ahead and you submit to the purification rites, take some young man into the temple. You'll show everybody your bona fide. You've got the credentials to be a good, a good Jew. Paul says, sure, I'll do it. Why did he do it? Because different regions had different practices. And if this will help God's work in this region, I'll do it. If it'll hurt God's work in this region, I'm not going to do it. Different regions, different practices. Is the unity of the church threatened? It is not. Is the authority of Holy Scripture threatened? It is not. Apparently, God understands that on this big wide globe, we don't always understand the ramifications of what we believe as best to be applied to our people. We know what's good here. We just can't answer for there. Wow. Since you raised the question, let me end with a question. I'll ask you. What about this new generation? Growing up in the church today, I want to, tell you, I want to talk to you singers on the front row. You guys did a great job. Nice job. Very, very proud of you. And I love that one. This is a new generation. You know that one about the generation God raising up? When they started singing that, we all started singing. My heart said, yes, this is the new generation coming. So I'm asking you this question. What about this new generation growing up in this culture today? You know that they very much value racial unity and diversity, gender equality. Is the church in the West prepared to lose a generation of young who simply cannot understand why the church rejects the godly values of justice and equity and equality? Should we just let them go? 
how can we let them go? And by the way, this generation, they're not too keen on this fancy footwork that has been done to neutralize Paul's powerful point to the Gentile Christians in Galatia. One more text. Put it on the screen. Galatians 3.28. Paul cries out, There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. End quote. Now, some people duck around that and say, oh, but that's just dealing with salvation. My friend, that is dealing with, with the very gut and heart of the Christian church. That's what it's dealing with. It's not just salvation. It's everything we stand for. The walls have come down thanks to Calvary. The walls have come down. Why, do we che- why shall we keep them up? You want to know the truth of it all? This is it. Our world, look, look, as we sit here, our world is rapidly disintegrating in front of our eyes. This society is going to hell in a handbasket. We're watching it. Heaven must be desperate to reach this generation in a single generation. So why would God not issue the call now? I need all hands on deck, please. Why not? Why not? The fruits of godly women in ministry today, and I'm going to tell you something, I have labored side by side with five of them on this campus and in this church. The fruits of godly women today are compelling divine evidence of God's anointing of their spiritual leadership. They have all the authority they need in the call of Christ to minister to this global community of faith. thus it was with Ellen, and thus it must be, I believe, with the church she helped to found. Let me end with a story sent to me by Kathy Dembski. Just this week, James Nix, a little piece he wrote in, in the Adventist Review, stories this long, but let me read it. The five-foot, two-inch lady stood at the pulpit preaching. It was Sabbath morning, and as usual, everyone was listening. As Ellen White talked about the matchless love of Jesus, she suddenly paused. Seeming to forget that the audience was there, she looked heavenward as if gazing into the very face of Jesus, and she exclaimed, Oh, Jesus, how I love you. How I love you. How I love you. Years later, a witness named Ella Robinson, who was in that audience, recalled, I quote her now, A deep hush came over the audience Heaven seemed very near. By her fruit, you will know her. By her fruit, you will know them as well. You will. You will know. Take out your connect card, please. It's tucked away in your worship bulletin. Guests, we're delighted to have you worshiping with us today. This is what we do at this time every Sabbath. So join us in this. Just your name, email address for sure, particularly if you're, you're, you're going to join this think tank. Name, email address, whatever else you're comfortable with. The back side of the card, the next step side of the card. Here they are. Box number one, I wish to live with the same three passions the pioneers had. Me too. Me too. Box number two, I am grateful for the Holy Spirit's spiritual gifts that remain active in the church until Christ returns. Me too. 
And box number three, I will pray for the unity of our world church as it seeks to be obedient to God's will. I will, and I'm asking you, I don't care what you believe on this subject, we must pray together. We must pray together for the unity of God's movement on this planet at such a critical time in human history. And if you want to be a part of that little think tank, we need a control group now. We've got excellent feedback from the two last Sunday. Just put Go 2016 at the bottom. Go 2016 at the bottom. We'll send you, we need your email. We'll send you a note where you can be a part of this ground changing, shifting thinking. I want to pray with you. Dear God, so here we are. Pioneers are in our rearview mirror way back there, but here we are, third millennium. How then shall we live? We have the Word of God. We have the, we have the messenger of God. We have the Lord Jesus Himself. Grant us the grace and the discernment to follow where Jesus leads. And, oh, Father, keep your church, this movement, united on that which matters. Receive now our morning tithes and offerings in Christ's name. Amen.